0: well good morning everyone it is uh, as ben said good to quote see you all this morning here thanks for logging in since the shelter-in-place mandates were issued several weeks ago it seems that all of the news that we see and we hear somehow relate to covid 19 and it's not just the the health or the economic or the political concerns it's also everyday things like Grocery shopping, meal planning, what television to watch, what games to play. Sometimes it seems like the media uh, doesn't think that its readers or watchers have any sort of creativity or foresight since we need all of these ideas. Uh, do, Do we really need that much help with everything? But in the midst of all these various articles, there is no shortage of content on maintaining sanity and peace in our marriages and in our families. And they identify many ways that uh, husbands and wives and kids can, can hurt each other in the family context. But you also see a lot of information out there on being um, wary of what isolation can do uh, in our mental health issues and then the, the subsequent addictions and bad habits that we can fall back into. Needless to say, all of us feel these various stresses, if we're honest with ourselves, and we can feel the temptations and experience the failures that getting into these stressful environments creates. It's fair to say that many of us have experienced these, these challenges uh, that are described in these articles. I know our family has. Um, we're having a really good time in some ways, but in other ways, the, the pressure of always being together and the, the change of routines and all of these other aspects of what the uh, shelter-in-place mandates, uh, the stresses that they bring, uh, it's not easy. As we've seen over the past month, the Psalms speak to our current conditions very poignantly and as the scheduled psalms for today psalms 78 and 79 they continue to show the the uh, relative um, ways that the psalms really speak to our to our situation Uh, they are dealing with sin patterns and stresses Uh, In times of anxiety, they're dealing with uh, continued habits that we enter into when things are difficult. But they also show us how to strengthen our hope in God and how to remain steadfast in Him during these times of stress. Now, Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in all of the psalms, and it's a story Occasionally you see throughout the law and the prophets, the writings, and the New Testament as well, just summaries of some Old Testament history, summaries of history of Israel that give some background for the admonitions and instructions that they're wanting to make for present-day circumstances, and Psalm 78 is like that. Now the first four verses that, that Lawrence read are beckoning for the audience to listen intently to what he's going to be explaining. He states that he's gonna lay out what he calls some some dark words and mysterious things that have been passed down from generation to generation. Now there doesn't seem to be anything dark or mysterious about the content of the psalm, but it does seem to refer to that these these psalms, that these ideas, that these stories uh, have kind of remained hidden. They've been in dark places. They haven't been brought out per the instructions of the writers, uh, to the generations upon generations. And this psalmist is wanting to make sure that he and his generation is not going to be like previous generations. They are going to bring these things to light. Now the second four verses in the introduction echo strong themes from the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy we see Moses telling the second generation of the Israelites coming out of Egypt uh, about the the stories of their parents. The first generation coming out of Egypt were not they were not faithful to god they had they had seen the power of God demonstrated in their very lives. God had saved them from Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw the victory over Egypt's army at the Red Sea. But they remained unfaithful to God. And so Moses had to tell the second generation because God prohibited that first generation from entering into the land. And so after 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, Moses instructed the second generation. The psalmist is doing something similar. He is wanting to make sure that his his readers and those who are listening to this psalm being read are not going to be like that first generation, but they're going to set their hope in God through the the retelling of these stories of God's power. The body of the psalm consists of three major sections. The first and the third narrate some specific times throughout Israel's history, how God continued to demonstrate his power and his love and his mercy and his judgment um, and then consistently showing how Israel responded with unfaithfulness and rebellion towards God. The middle section provides a type of summary for all of the, the dynamics that existed between, between God and Israel. It's a really a summary of their relationship, showing that uh, God would show mercy and he would show power, but they remained uh, faithless and only worshiped God with lip service, but not in heart and in action. So I want to look at these sections here briefly. The first section is a segment of Israel's history described as their wilderness experience, as told in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It begins with God's destruction of Egypt at the Red Sea. And and while the books show the history all the way up into Israel's Entering into the promised land, the psalmist takes that experience and focuses on one particularly shameful episode in Israel's history. He builds up to the event by demonstrating and describing in detail God's power to save Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea. If you remember, all of the armies of Egypt were were drowned in the Red Sea as they followed Israel into the Red Sea that God had opened up for them. He also tells the story of of after that, while they were wandering in the wilderness, uh, they were thirsty, and God literally brought water from a rock. So those two times are narrated uh, from Israel's history in this wilderness. But even after seeing God's demonstration of power, at a moment when they were hungry, they said this, can God spread a table? In the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. But can he also give bread or provide meat to his people? Now, you can imagine how God, who had literally just destroyed the largest army on earth at that time, responded to this. He was quite angry. And the text gives a reason for it. It says, they did not believe in God and they did not trust in his saving power. He ended up feeding them in their their cries for hunger. God heard, God showed compassion. He ended up feeding them manna and quail and they, they, they ate the manna and quail to the point of gluttony. And God in his continued anger from their complaining and grumbling that came from their disbelief and in their gluttonous behavior, brought judgment upon them and killed some of them. Now the third segment, so that's, that's the whole first segment of this psalm. The third segment is much broader. It recounts the plagues that God brought upon Egypt to save Israel that finally got Egypt to release them. All the way into the entry into the promised land, the driving out of the inhabitants from the promised land, because they were other nations were in those places, and then shows how and it describes how Israel then settled into their to their new homes in their new land. These are described, these last things are described in the book of Joshua. Then the psalmist details their continued unfaithfulness to God even while they were still in the land. They began began to worship idols. So in judgment of Israel for its worship of false gods and its idolatry, God withdrew his protection from Israel and delivered them into the hands of their enemies. And this segment describes the essential elements in the book of Judges. So at this point... The psalmist has brought stories from the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. The second segment, the the one in the middle, effectively describes Israel's relationship with God throughout the entire Old Testament, through the hundreds of years of these various experiences. And it repeats the reasoning behind Israel's idolatry. See, they weren't just breaking the law. Breaking the law was a consequence of something else. And the text says that it was a consequence of unbelief. It says, in spite of all this, in spite of all of God's power, all of God's judgment, and all of God's mercy, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So it was unbelief that led them to their lawlessness. It was unbelief that led them to their rebellion and to their idolatry. They really didn't believe, even after seeing what God had done, they really didn't believe that God was going to continue to save them. And there are several statements that the psalmist makes in this middle section. First, he acknowledged that Israel would repent when things really got bad for them and when they experienced God's judgment at the hands of other nations. The text says that they, they would remember that God was their refuge. They would remember that God was their redeemer. But in that remembrance, they only paid lip service to God in their repentance and in their worship to him. That's the second thing. Their repentance was shallow. They would flatter God. They would sing his praises. And they, but it was essentially lies to him. Their words of repentance were not true. They were not sincere. In heart and action, they remained fickle in their devotion and their faith towards God. The third thing this psalmist says here is that even though that Israel remained unfaithful, even though they remained unbelieving in his power to save, Because of God's compassion, because of God's forgiveness, because he realized that they were just flesh and a passing of the wind, he continued to atone for their sin, and he restrained from expressing his full anger and wrath. He restrained from completely destroying them. And the fourth thing that the psalmist says here is that Much of Israel's unbelief and much of Israel's unfaithfulness was literally due to the fact that they had forgotten what God had done. And that's why this psalmist is is emphasizing um, so much the importance of understanding these stories and passing them down repeatedly to the next generations. And the psalm concludes by narrating God's eventual routing of Israel's enemies— this is in the, uh, the books of, 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 of 1 Kings and 1 Samuel. Eventual routing of Israel's enemies by raising up a descendant from the tribe of Judah, the boy David, who eventually became king. Contrary to the celebrity mentality present within all of us that seeks to instill leadership to those who appear to be the best and the brightest and the strongest, God was looking for a different type of leader. God did not select a descendant from the tribe of Joseph, but from the tribe of Judah. And this recalls one of the the most famous stories in all of the Bible, the story of of, of Joseph and his brothers when, when Joseph became second in command in Egypt. And in this story, Joseph really does appear to be the hero. But it is Judah who actually rises in the midst of this, He overcomes his sin, he becomes an advocate for his father, he becomes an advocate for his brothers, he becomes an advocate for God's purposes through that family, family. And it is these characteristics that God is looking for to lead the nation. It is Jacob that pronounces a blessing on Judah, that he would have a descendant, who would rule not only Israel, but all of the nations of the world forever in peace. It's these qualities that the psalmist heralds as he describes David, a man with an upright heart who shepherded God's people with a skillful hand. And that concludes Psalm 78. The transition into Psalm 79 is quite abrupt. It's not a story. It's a very zealous and forceful prayer appealing to God for forgiveness and compassion for them as a nation, but also that God would bring judgment upon the nations that were punishing and hurting and destroying Israel at that time. Israel had been exiled. The writer is suffering, excuse me. And the nations, <clears throat> the nations continued to taunt Israel, and the nations continued to taunt God, making fun of them, essentially. And so the psalmist is crying out to God. Yes, he's experiencing suffering, but he sees things in a bigger picture. Long past is the time when Israel was flourishing under David and Solomon. And they are experiencing the ultimate judgment that God said would happen if they continue as a nation in their unfaithfulness. The complete exile of Israel from the promised land into four nations. The psalmist understands where they are at, and he understands that it is because of their sin that they're experiencing what they are. But the psalmist also knows God. And he also knows the promises that God has made To the nation. And he appeals to God on the basis of these things to bring deliverance, to bring forgiveness, to bring atonement and compassion, and also to bring judgment upon these nations. He states this Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. He's not crying out to God here solely on the basis of the pain that he and the people are suffering. He is crying out to God on the basis of God's character, on the basis of God's promises to make a nation and that it would dwell securely under a descendant of David who would reign over Israel and the nations forever. He sees that the violence of the nations against Israel are also also violence against God and appeals to God for that. He asks finally that that God would bring bring them to a place of security and prosperity for all time, which would eventually then lead them to praise God forever and ever as a nation that experienced the promises that God said he would do. So what do these psalms have for us? As we continue to face the the challenges of of COVID-19 and the shelter-in-place mandates and and the health concerns and the stresses and all of these kinds of things, how do these psalms speak to us? Well, I, I think that they provide some clues on how to maintain steadfastness of heart in our our faith towards God, in our actions towards God, in our actions toward others. Steadfastness in our faithfulness and in our love. I think that these psalms really contribute to to that specifically. In moments of stress, these psalms speak to things that we can do uh, to gird ourselves for the challenges. And like Lawrence said in his introduction, you know, the goal isn't to get to normal. You know, things are going to be different after this, and that's a good thing in a lot of ways. God is preparing us for a different reality, and these psalms go a long way towards that as well. There are several things that I want to point out and how they do that. The first thing is to acknowledge that these psalms direct us to enlarge the story that we find ourselves in those in israel who grumbled against god in the wilderness longing for literally just food they were longing for the food of egypt and if you read the stories they go on into these long descriptions on how great the food was in egypt and why god had brought them all the way out there in the desert to kill them See, they were putting themselves within a, within a very short story, a very limited narrative, narrative framework that maybe was a few days or a few weeks long. Philosophers and social scientists and human geographers and theologians of a, and a lot of other people who, who spend their lives thinking about how human beings see themselves in this world argue that, that we form stories, we form narratives that help us situate ourselves in the the world that we live so that we can make decisions and and live our lives and envision a future, Um, we, we create stories to do this. And the wilderness Israelites, the ones who were complaining about the food there in the desert, they were using a narrative, a story, constructed largely around their personal comfort, specifically what they were eating and drinking at the time. And if if your story, if that's as large as your story gets, what are you going to be eating and what are you going to be drinking? That kind of a story doesn't provide the resources to endure hardship without grumbling and complaining and rebelling. When you're not getting what you want, the story is not working out, your vision of what the story should be isn't playing out, and you're going to grumble and complain. You're going to fight against it. As you look at the ten events narrated in the wilderness episode, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, most of them revolve around what they were eating or drinking, the fact that it wasn't as good as what they had in Egypt, that the fact that maybe God was waiting too long, any number of things. But it was all around what they were eating and drinking. And that shortened narrative caused them to do two things. Because they could only see things through the lens of what they were eating and drinking, they forgot, first of all, they forgot the history of God's works of power Power that had saved them from far worse dangers than food and drink. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they forgot God's promises concerning the future. So they forgot the past and what God had already done to save them. And they forgot what God had said he was going to continue to do into the future. He promised that he would deliver them from Egypt. Boom, he did it. But then he promised that he would take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they forgot both things. They could see a few days into their past, a few days into their future, and convinced themselves that they were going to die of hunger and die of thirst in the desert. That is how much control their physical appetites had over their hearts, and why they were so fickle in their faithfulness towards God. Now, how are we to enlarge our stories? How are we to enlarge the narrative frameworks that we see ourselves in? I think there's only one way to do it. And it's, the, and it's an instruction that the Psalms have been given us since the very first Psalm. We need to read and meditate on the law day and night. The happy and prosperous person is the person who meditates on the law day and night. And the law, again, it's not a list of rules or instructions. The law is in reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And oftentimes the scriptures use the law to refer to to the whole counsel of God all all at once. And the person who is reading and meditating on this whole counsel of God begins to see that that this world and and its history um, is all something that God is doing. The stories in the law of God, the stories in the Gospels, the stories in the book of Acts and the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, these weren't stories that were written just for the original recipients. They were given to us. We are those later generations. And they are for us to enlarge our own stories that we see ourselves in. They are to enlarge our own narrative frameworks and deepen in us God's power to save because that is what the stories are all about. God saving people from sin and destruction and evil. I think it's fair to say that many of us probably have a little more time on our hands than we did prior to the onset of these Shelter in place mandates. Why not use this time to engage ourselves and if we have a family, to engage our families in some of these stories to really begin to see that, you know, life during COVID and the month that we've experienced so far and in the months ahead, you know, it had a beginning and it's going to have an end. The broader story of this world is taking place. Second, in addition to enlarging the stories that we see ourselves in, these Psalms direct us to accurately see the cast of characters. And this is important in several ways. First, we need to learn that we are not the main characters in our story, we tend to view everything in terms of how it affects us personally. The wilderness Israelites interpreted their experiences within their limited narrative and with themselves as the central character. When they experienced suffering, they grew fearful that this story was going to come to an abrupt end. The central character themselves would die and all would be lost. Well, the central character in the story of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is promised... In the book of Genesis, in the third chapter of Genesis, the person of Jesus Christ, not by his name, but they refer to a descendant that would come and crush evil and establish peace over the world forever. And he remains the hope of Israel throughout its history up until the time of his coming. And in the Gospels, we learn about how Jesus is indeed the King of Israel And this awaited, promised descendant. Why, indeed, Jesus Christ is the hope of Israel and the hope of all of the nations. And the story continues. Jesus Christ continues to be the hope for the church as God's people as we wait for him to return and to fulfill all his promises. With an expanded narrative and an accurate cast of characters, We can interpret our suffering as just one of many experiences along the way, one of the many various plot twists, so to speak, that's going to ultimately end in the final victory of Jesus Christ, his victory over evil, and his victory that he's going to draw all of his family into. The story will go on in the midst of our suffering. Second, they needed to rethink the kind of person the hero should be. In contrast to our usual inclinations, the person of Judah, rather than Joseph, highlighted what God sees in a hero, a person in whom redemption from suffering, if you can remember Judah's story, he was not a happy man, and his life was not successful, and he'd made a number of pretty substantial mistakes. Sins against his family, sins against God. But through God's work in him, he eventually became, like I said earlier, an advocate for his father, an advocate for his brothers, an advocate for the purposes of God, and had a willingness to literally give his life for others. This is the kind of hero that God wants to exalt, this is the kind of hero that we should long for. This then enables us to interpret suffering because as Judah suffered, Christ suffered, even more so. And historically, Israel missed Christ because they were wanting a different type of hero. Well, God wants to show that his hero is one that understands the sufferings of this world and overcomes that through love and sacrifice third with an expanding with an expanded story with an expanded narrative framework that we see ourselves in with a recasting of the characters and thinking of the characters correctly we can see that our lives are a part of the story of Jesus Christ it's his story It's not our story, but we are a part of his story. We are in his story, and the scriptures say we are in him. This fits nicely with how the New Testament speaks about our new identities. If we have believed that God has overcome evil and sin in the world and in us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving his saving power, then we are what the scriptures call in Christ. We are unified with the central character. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, as the scriptures teach in a number of books. His victory over sin and death, his victory over suffering, is our victory over sin and death, our victory over suffering. He experienced it, and we will experience it. He overcame, we will overcome, because we are in him, in his story. We know the end of his story. And because of that, we know the end of ours. And then these things finally provide the strength for us to do what ancient Israel failed to do. There are two things. The first thing is that it makes our hearts steadfast. We can make our hearts firm in their commitment to God and the expressions of love towards God and towards other people. The heart is the seat of our wills. It's the seat of our emotions. Our hearts reflect what we love, and we will do what we love. But I think that we erroneously think that we cannot direct and change our hearts. We often feel that our hearts are expressions of our feelings, and we can't go against our feelings. Well, that's not true. The psalm clearly states that they, the ancient Israelites, could have made their hearts steadfast in their devotion to God. But with their narrowed narratives, their very focused view of the world, with them as the central characters, with them looking for a wrong kind of hero, they could not. They could not change their hearts. The resources that God has provided in His Word and the vision of a hero that God is putting out towards us in the person of Jesus Christ, these things have the ability to shape our hearts. Christ working these things in us shapes our hearts. This means that when we are faced with suffering, we can draw upon the resources provided by the the bigger story. And we can draw upon the resources of the indwelling, victorious leader and ruler, Jesus Christ. We are in him, and he is in us, the Spirit teaches. And in these resources, we can overcome sin from controlling us. We're not slaves to it. We can resist in these moments of of being uh, tightly dwelling together. We can resist being harsh to our wives. We can resist being disrespectful to our husbands. We can resist being harsh to our children. Our children can resist disobeying us. We can resist addictive behaviors and bad habits that we can so easily go to when things get hard. It also then moves us to pray. Psalm 79 is a very fervent and zealous and powerful prayer. They are suffering, but he's not just praying that God would deliver them from their suffering. He's praying that the purposes of God would be fulfilled in them and through them, not just for that nation, but also for all the nations. It's just as Jesus Christ said, Seek first the kingdom of God and all things will be added unto you. Well, many of us don't experience the blessings and the promises of God and his work of deliverance in us because we seek first our own little kingdom and our own little stories with us as the central character, and we don't seek first God's kingdom and God's central character who is Jesus Christ, and we don't see ourselves within that story. That's why we don't experience a lot of the forgiveness and the the power and the, the demonstration of God's salvation in our lives. Again, these prayers are not just for our own selves and needs. They're for the furtherance of God's purposes. And with the expanded story and the, the central character in place and with these things understood, it moves us to pray as Psalm 79 shows us. This is a prayer for God's purposes to be fulfilled for his name's sake, for his glory and honor, for the demonstration of his mercy and compassion. It's not a limp prayer. It's a powerful prayer. So we can move steadfast, move towards steadfastness in our hearts and in our devotion to God. And we can move mightily in prayer to see the purposes of God's fulfilled with this enlarged understanding of the story and with the central character in the right place. As the scriptures say, when Christ comes into his glory, we will come into ours. And that hope, strengthened by faith in God's promises in his completed work and what he says he's going to do in the future, these things will strengthen our hearts to remain steadfast to him, which means we will remain steadfast to those we love and those whom God has called us to serve. Let me pray. God, thank you for these beautiful psalms. Thank you for the stories that they, that they reflect. Thank you for the examples that they set in, in, in prayer and in passing on these traditions. God, we pray that you would strengthen us as a church to indeed seek first your kingdom and your purposes, but God, before that, help us to understand what those purposes are. And if we don't understand your story and who Jesus Christ is in the midst of that story, if we don't understand the promises that you've made that we can hold fast to, God, we We recognize and confess that we won't be able to do this. So God, we pray that you'd help us to know the stories. Help us, God, to fulfill your calling upon our lives. Help us to live with the zeal and fervor and love and self-sacrifice that these times call for. In your son's name we pray. Amen.